So my uh, subject for tonight uh, is the dance of faith and wisdom. I want to? Uh, there's not going to be much dancing in it, unfortunately. But I like this. I like this image. Um, so to explore these two aspects of our practice that work in partnership with one another. So by faith, um, I'm talking about the, the quality of sada, the Pali word sada, which means faith, is often translated as faith or trust or confidence or conviction. And it's, it's really in many ways a heart quality. So the word sada is related to the root of the, the word for heart. And then wisdom is one of these near words that Bante was exploring with us the other day. So it's panya, which means um, a thorough understanding, or thorough knowing, or discernment. So a clear understanding of the way things actually are uh, as it matters to us in terms of our wish to be free from suffering. And I am aware that some of you at this point in the retreat may be suffering from some concept fatigue. So if that's you, you can just hold this very lightly. So I really, I liked uh, Andrea's image that she used last week of holding a mug and you can either kind of bash away at it with a pickaxe or you can just hold it very gently and sort of feel your way around it. And so just, you know, if, if you're feeling a little bit concept fatigued, then just let my words wash through and see whether uh, just, you know, just uh, let them touch you lightly. So another um, maybe uh, expansion of wisdom. I like. This is something that uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya, who I'll probably quote from quite a lot this evening, has to say about wisdom. He says, wisdom is what this practice is about. It's the elusive and hard-earned quality of mind we so desperately try to achieve. When found, it will become the compass that shows the way as we try to penetrate and understand the three mind-defiling elements of greed, aversion and delusion. The antidote to delusion is wisdom and the byproduct of wisdom is happiness. Not the sensory happiness that we spend most of our lives chasing, but genuine wisdom that comes from, from the insight, information and knowledge gained by being continually aware. So in our, in our culture, um, it often seems that faith and some of the associations of faith are actually in direct contrast with wisdom. So an example would be, say, you know, the, the uh, faith that was discredited at the time of Galileo that the, um, that the sun moved around the earth. And actually all the evidence pointed to the fact that the earth moved around the sun, but it took a long time for uh, that to be accepted in what we might call the, the faith community of the time. Or today, you know, we have the debate between the creationists and the evolutionists. And so, you know, people adhere to a faith uh, in, in creationism. Uh, and yet all the, the evidence, the wisdom seems to point to um, the, the theory of evolution. But luckily in, in this teaching and practice, these qualities, rather than being in conflict, are, are kind of mutually supporting they're balancing um, spiritual faculties at work as partners and they're in a kind of perpetual dance with one another. So sometimes one will be taking the lead in our practice and sometimes another one, the other one. So as we've all said in different ways before, and I think I've said this in previous talks, we kind of need to place our trust in something in order to function and a certain amount of trust comes to us naturally. But we also have different personality types. So some of us are more maybe faith types and some of us 
are more wisdom types like that's our stronger suit some of some of our minds are more naturally inclined towards scrutiny and investigation and others may be more inclined towards kind of heartful devotion Uh, and I like the way that again Utejaniya puts this he says we're all naturally intelligent in different ways So I've mentioned the word spiritual faculties and just to place these in a list scape for those of you who find lists helpful. Of course, they're two of the five spiritual faculties together with mindfulness, um, virya or energy or persistence and samadhi, stability or collectedness of mind. And together, these five faculties are are cultivated, strengthened uh, in our practice and they develop into what are called the five strengths and it's said that the five strengths slope and incline towards Nibbana as surely as the Ganges flows towards the ocean. So I don't want to talk about all five tonight, I just would mention in passing that uh, if we're making an effort to maintain a continuity of mindfulness then three of them are already at least three are already under cultivation the quality of mindfulness the quality of persistence uh, and uh, the quality of um, collectedness or um, concentration through this uh, steadiness of mindfulness that we are um, aspiring to develop So tonight I just want to talk about faith and wisdom. Greg, I think, mentioned um, faith in his first talk where he talked about uh, suffering, dukkha, and that actually one of the uh, positive um, outcomes of the experience of dukkha is the arising of faith. It's seen as one of the, the proximate causes for the arising of faith because what the experience of unsatisfactoriness does in our lives is it prompts us to go out seeking so it gives us that initial boost that um, sends us out in search and a willingness maybe to be open to listening it's also a kind of energy of being drawn to what's good and uplifting Um, it gives us a, a sense of aspiration and direction and I, I really like to remember the, the Latin word credo that is the beginning of the creed in uh, Latin, which actually, so this is like, you know, I believe, I believe in God, da, 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 but actually it, the, the root meaning of that is I give my heart to something. And that quality of faith is um, it's about what we, what we choose to give our heart to. And uh, with the giving of my heart to something, there arises a sense of devotion and a a sense of maybe holding something sacred. And for many of us, that can be a really um, important um, energy and uh, encouragement to bring into our practice. So faith gladdens and energizes the mind and and it kind of prompts us into action. And often uh, um, we hear something that uh, actually the wisdom that's already present in the mind recognizes and responds to. So when Bhante was talking about the mosquitoes this morning, I was remembering actually the very first Dharma talk I ever heard when I was 17. Uh, I think there was a large part of it was about how Ajahn Sumedho had dealt with the mosquitoes in Thailand. And it wasn't, you know, it's not a particularly... um, complex dharma teaching but for me there was something in the way that he talked about it that really uh, was the first time in in my life I'd ever heard anybody kind of explain the way that uh, I could take responsibility for my own experience of happiness in how I related to something and it had a really profound impact Um, But faith also in in this context is not blind faith. So many of us will be familiar with the the sutta where the Buddha is talking to the the villagers um, in this village of of Kalama. And 
they they're asking him about you know all the different um, teachers who pass through and um, different samanas who they support and who offer them teachings and say they're all offering contradictory teachings and we don't know who to believe. And the Buddha says to them, well, you need to test out what you hear against your own experience, that you don't just uh, take something, um, absorb something because it's what somebody's told you. So he says, don't go by reports or legends or traditions or by scripture or logical conjecture, by inference or analogies, etc., He says, when you know for yourselves that certain qualities are unskillful and are blameworthy, that these qualities are criticized by the wise, and that these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, These qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and happiness. You should enter and remain in them. So I think it's, you know, we we probably, more of us uh, uh, remember the part of that 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 encourages us to test what we've heard against our own experience. But you can notice that he also says it's really useful to be willing to take provisionally on trust the teaching of apparently wise people. And this is actually the first condition for the um, growing of faith, is uh, association with good people, with what are called kalyanamitta, spiritual friends, people who embody faith and generosity, uh, virtue and wisdom. So this is the first condition for the growing of faith. The second one is listening to the true Dharma. The third is appropriate attention, wise attention, yonisso manasikara. And the fourth is practicing in accordance with Dharma. So these kinds of teachings, they're not just about rearranging our views and our stories, they're about actually how we conduct our lives. So we begin with some kind of embryonic trust in Dharma, which also entails some belief in cause and effect and personal responsibility, this teaching on karma that Greg was speaking about, recognizing that our actions have consequences and that they af- that affect me. And so when I take that on board, I start to pay attention to my experiences and the ways that... I do see cause and effect operating in my life and not just my outer life, but my inner life. And the natural consequence of this is a growth of understanding and the motivation to keep choosing wiser wiser actions. And like faith, wisdom also advances by degrees. And actually in the teachings, the the conditions for the arising of faith and the arising of wisdom are pretty closely aligned. So both begin by associating with wise, good and wise people. Wisdom is said to unfold in three stages. So the first is just uh, by listening to or hearing uh, the teachings of, of the Dharma maybe by also by kind of watching the example of people who practice. This is called Suttamaya Panya. And then uh, from that, we gain this curiosity and interest uh, in examining our experience in the light of what we've heard, practicing investigation of Dhamma, Dhamma Vichaya. And this kind of the wisdom that arises from this is called uh, Chintamaya Panya. And then finally, these become um, experiential wisdom or bhavana maya panya, bhavana being cultivation or practice. And that kind of wisdom arises out of uh, a mindful practice, mindfulness practice that's based both on good information and our, on, on our wise reflection. And this reflects, you know, the way that we naturally learn things. So I was trying to think of an example, and the first thing, place that my mind went was 
when I was about uh, four years old and we had a a chest freezer at home and my mother would get things in and out of the freezer and she'd always tell me not to touch while she was getting things out of the freezer but of course one day I go and lift up the lid of the freezer and stick my hand in and my hand froze to the freezer (laughs) and I screamed and luckily she was around and came and rescued me but I never put my hand into the freezer again you know we 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 learn that actually something is is harmful and when we really learn that the inclination to do it disappears so that's a very simple example but i was thinking in terms of dharma teachings one one teaching that we hear often um is the teaching that whatever we frequently think and ponder becomes the inclination of our mind And that's one I I kind of often reflect on and review in my experience. And I really notice how true that is, which is why it outrages me when people claim that, you know, it doesn't matter what you watch or, you know, what you expose yourself to in terms of uh, input out there, because that's totally not my experience. I really feel, you know, the more I observe, the more I concur with the truth of this and I also see that there are certain places as practice develops that the mind just doesn't want to go anymore so certain sorts of thoughts just uh, don't arise so this arising of wisdom is is an effect of our practice it's not something we can just push, push a button and say okay wisdom come on tap here but what we can do is we can cultivate the conditions for it to arise and uh, we can apply it and thereby uh, reinforce it so there, there are many teachings on the sut- in the suttas on the conditions for the arising of wisdom but um, there's one that I personally like so I thought I'd, I'd share uh, this as hopefully briefly which is um, a sutta called the Chanki Sutta and Chanki is a is a young bra uh, actually he's not he's a senior Brahmin but it's about a conversation that the Buddha has with a very bright and precocious young Brahmin who's uh, just 16 years old and he's uh, visiting the Buddha with a lot of very senior teachers and he keeps interrupting the conversation and the Buddha actually tells him off and then some of the senior Brahmins say to the Buddha, oh, no, no, he's, this is a very gifted young man. He's, he's uh, you know, got many good qualities and he's very, he's very learned and very wise. Please let him ask a question. And so um, Karpatika is the, is the young man's name. And he, so he's, he waits until he thinks that the Buddha's uh, attending to him and then he asks him, he says, these, these teachings that I'm learning are what are honored and taken, un, as taken as unquestionably true in our lineage and culture. But what do you have to say about this? And the Buddha asks him, are there any Brahmins alive today or as far back as you can remember who have personally claimed to know that these things you're being taught are the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I'm kind of paraphrasing how the Buddha would put it. (laughs) And uh, Kapatika says, no. And the Buddha says, well, then they're like the blind leading the blind. And so Kapatika says, well, how then do do I do my job as a Brahmin of preserving the truth? Because the Brahmins, he was being trained to be a custodian of knowledge in that culture. And the Buddha says to him, there are five things that may turn out in two different ways here and now. Faith, approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, and reflective acceptance of a view. You preserve, your tr- you preserve truth or your commitment to being truthful when you say honestly that one of these is your basis for thinking something but without claiming that what you think is true and everything else is wrong. And then Kapatika says to him, well, then how do I actually discover what's true? And the Buddha says, well, you pay attention to a teacher and you listen to their teaching, but you also check out their character. 
You know, do they seem to be affected by greed and hatred and delusion in such a way that they claim to know things that they don't know or mislead people in a way that was for their harm? <laughs> and once you've accepted that the teachers or established that the teacher's not affected in that way, then you go and listen to the teacher, you pay respectful attention, you remember and examine the meaning of what you've heard, and in doing that, you start to uh, gain some kind of acceptance of the teaching and the motivation to apply it. And as you do that, you keep investigating the teaching and keep keep striving. And that striving, you know, we, this is a bad word in our voc vocabulary, but this is this is wholesome striving, not the striving we keep all telling you to drop. <laughs> and in this way, you see the truth for yourself. But even then, there's still not a final arrival at the truth. That takes many, many repetitions, <coughs> cultivating and developing the same process of listening and reflecting and applying and observation and effort. And then you'll actually realize the truth. So I, I like this sutta because, I, firstly, I think this is a very brave question for this young man to ask whose future was invested in this whole system, and yet he was open to questioning it uh, in a way that could undermine everything he was being taught. And, of course, you know, in the, in the story, he then goes on to go for refuge to the, to the Buddha, become a disciple of the Buddha, and become fully enlightened. But he wasn't to have known that when he posed the question. And the other thing I like about it is that uh, it implies that wisdom doesn't mean that you have to know more than you know. It means knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and being open to further learning. So there's some lines in the Dhammapada that, that kind of reflect this. It says, a fool with a sense of his foolishness is at least to that extent wise. But a fool who thinks himself wise really deserves to be called a fool. So something else from Sayadaw Utejaniya. He says, making an effort to be open for wisdom to arise in any moment is essential. This is not a contrived effort, nor is it a blind acceptance of what's actually happening in the moment, but more a passive investigation of what's happening in the mind in that moment. Consequently, we have an overview from a perspective of objectivity that allows insight to arise. We've created space by stepping back from the object. We're now seeing the activities of the mind and our experiences with fresh eyes. And we're bringing the wisdom of a beginner's mind. I like that, the wisdom of a beginner's mind. Curiosity, asking how to be more raw in the moment and not assuming that the experience is what we always assumed it to be. All this without excessive questioning or intellectualizing. So this, this isn't easy to do because our dharma lenses are always slipping off our nose, misting up. And this is why we have dharma talks and this is why we you know, take times like being on retreat to devote to personal practice and reflection. And it's also the purpose of the one-to-one -one meetings that we have here. And I just want to kind of do a little aside here about the one-to-one uh, -one meetings with the teachers and how, you know, how I feel, what I feel about their purpose. Because for me, the, the main purpose of them is to actually help to grow and balance these qualities of faith and wisdom now, ideally, to put ourselves out of a job you know, so that you're bringing your own faith and wisdom online and you don't need uh, that you become less and less dependent on what faith and wisdom we can supply. So we tend, we've stopped calling them interviews with all these connotations that 
interviews have. And I know uh, many of you have asked, well, what, what to do in these interviews? And several people now have stepped into this thing of, I'm not going to plan in advance for the, the practice meetings, uh, which is a, a, a beautiful, um, you know, leaning into the faith side of practice. And then sometimes you think, actually, well, it would be really helpful to clarify specific things. So I'm going to uh, plan, make sure in advance that I don't forget to ask these questions. And both ways of using them can be really good. So we like to help you connect with your sense of trust as much as possible when we meet together, and therefore not to, not to intimidate you. And also for me to hold the perspective that this is a joint, a joint Dharma inquiry. So we're helping clean our Dharma lenses and view our, and investigate our experience through those. So I think I mentioned in an earlier talk, again from Utejaniya, where he says the difference between a meditator and a non-meditator is that when a car passes by, the meditator knows both that the car passed by and knows the experience of seeing and feeling and hearing and interpreting the experience, the thoughts or the thinking mind, or whatever is happening, and the non-meditator just knows that a car passed by. So you might come into a practice meeting, for example, and say, Jaya, my practice is going really badly, I'm having a horrible day. My meditation before breakfast was really peaceful and at breakfast I was really uh, full of metta for everyone in the dining room. But then after breakfast when I went to the bathroom I discovered that somebody had finished all the toilet roll and hadn't replaced it. And it's the third time that's happened. And as I came out of the bathroom, I saw the same yogi who I saw last time walking past. And I'm sure it's them. And they're being really selfish. You know. So please, will you make an announcement in the meditation hall that could, people could please you know, remember to put in a new toilet paper when you finish the one before? Yeah. because we're meant to be cultivating mindfulness here and this is really disrupting my practice. It's reinforcing my lifelong habit of being the martyr who always has to pick up after everybody else <laughs> and I'm going to be this way forever. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So what I or we might say to you in the interview is sort of questions like, well, you know, what were you aware of when you went into the bathroom? Was there mindfulness present or not? Was there mindfulness of the experience unfolding and what did it notice? Were you aware of seeing? Were you aware of the irritation arising and any thoughts that came with it? And how did it feel in your body? Did you notice, was there an awareness of seeing as, the, as you passed the other yogi? And what was, what was really happening in that time? And um, what's happening now? Maybe what's the result of, of thinking all these thoughts and are they really true? So we want to support you to do your own investigation and to um, maintain mindfulness. And also to encourage you to let go of having unwise attention of this tendency we have to frame everything through self-view. So that sense of I'm having a horrible day, this has ruined my practice, I'm like this and I always will be. So instead we want to look at how are we participating in our experience and how can the mind come into a wise relationship with that. And as we start to see what's happening and what's skillful and not skillful, the mind starts to let go. And as we start to look with, with some clarity, also the three characteristics start to reveal themselves. You know, our, our experience becomes a little less uh, solid than we thought it was. 
So I like to, I, I'm not going to talk about what we might see in terms of the three characteristics, because as promised there, I think there are going to be a few talks on those, those themes uh, in the next few days. But for me, um, one way I like to uh, translate the word vipassana is as seeing through, yeah. seeing through what's not so that what is can reveal itself. And so this is uh, insight is a process for me, I, th I think, of seeing through. And I, I noticed that in the practice meetings, you know, many, many, many different reports of ways that you've seen through some kind of way of holding experience or seeing experience that felt very uh, kind of solid and incontrovertible. And suddenly that whole construct or perception has evaporated or dissolved. And there's a freedom in that. So you can just, you know, notice and reflect on, well, what have you personally been seeing through? So you and consider whether it's true for you that insight is less about finding something that we can pin down and describe, or maybe it's more about a letting go of illusion. So another thing to notice about insights is that they're impermanent. So we have an insight, you know, some pattern frees itself up and then bingo, the next day it's come back. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. <laughs> so, but don't get discouraged. So again, Utejaniya, he says, in reality, the mind slips back and forth between right view and wrong view. In unguarded moments and in different contexts, the wrong view can still manifest and make us suffer. It takes a lot of dedicated commitment to mindfulness practice to learn the lesson repeatedly and for it to become entrenched in every sphere of our life. Sometimes, too, the wisdom gain can be very context-specific. So our role as Sangha to each other and our role as when we're in this teaching role with you is to support the re-arising of right view because as one of our colleagues put it, trying to see your own delusion is like trying to see the back of your head without a mirror. Yeah. And this is what we, we're all doing. Uh, we can all assist each other in this way. So Faith and wisdom, they kind of need to be topped up. You know, we can't take them for granted. We have to keep reinvesting our faith and our mental energy or our interest in useful things. So one way that this is done in, in um, traditional uh, practice is through recollection an honoring of the triple gem. Um, so when I was a nun, we would do uh, morning and evening pujas every day where we chanted um, a recollection of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the qualities of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And it had the effect of kind of orienting towards um, faith but also towards wisdom towards the content of the teachings and also brings up a lot of sense of gratitude and so we don't have a formal way of doing this here but we maybe you know actually uh, here at IMS the whole context supports doesn't it the remembering of these values and of these qualities and this has this has an effect on the mind so from, from my practice of regularly chanting these things, I sometimes, you know, find myself like I glance in the mirror and suddenly my eyes are going like lasers to finding the, the newest gray hairs that have sprouted and so forth. And then into the mind will ping something like, you know, the body is not self. And there's a kind of wake-up call that happens. Or I remember going shopping at... Uh, REI 
with actually a few nuns who I was taking. So Bante, I remembered this when Bante was talking about his REI experience, but taking, taking nuns shopping at REI for various things they needed. And actually we chanted in the morning before that, we chanted the, the fire sermon, which is the, the sutta where it says the eye is burning with the fires of greed, the fires of hatred and the fires of delusion. And so as I'm in REI and seeing all these, all these things that I never knew I needed, you know, <laughs> into, into the mind there pops the eye is burning. <laughs> And it's like, oh yes, <laughs> you know. So th- these things, like they really, they can really kind of skillfully nudge the mind in a certain direction. We c- we could call them brainwashing, but I, you know, brainwashing is something that we we use in a kind of sinister sense. But we are here, you know, we are consciously um, training the mind to develop in a certain way. I once did a counted up how many times a had done the sort of bowing practice of saying, you know, to the Buddha, I dedicate this body and life. To the Dharma, I dedicate this body and life. And I think it came out as 2,000 and something. And that, and that was, you know, in a relatively brief space as a nun, nothing like the amount of time Bante has spent in robes. And these things really, really impact us. And you probably have your own versions of these. Uh, the, the evening chanting here also, it goes in a, on a certain level. So it's a, a particular sentence that there is in, in the evening chanting that I used to do that says, the Dharma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. And I think that's a really beautiful one to hold in mind and reflect on, you know. If we hold these teachings in mind, they have a kind of um, protective function. So So taking taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma um, supports, you know, it's a, it's, it's a practice of faith, but it also supports the the ripening and the consolidation of wisdom. And similarly, the sangha. You know, when I've when I feel lost or confused or doubtful, I can lean into the support of sangha. I can lean into other people's faith. So I, I, I was sharing with somebody in a practice meeting the other day about being on retreat uh, a while ago and just having a day where I felt the, the mind was going completely crazy and I really didn't know what to do. And in the end, I just decided, well, I'm just going to you know, um, put myself into this container and follow along with what everybody else is doing and just flow into the meditation hall with the people flowing into the meditation hall, flow out of the meditation hall with them, and just kind of trust what the, uh, what the group is doing, what the community is doing, knowing that it's basically wholesome and skillful. And as I was doing that, I suddenly had this really beautiful perception that arose in the mind of, uh, that we were all just one organism, you know, practicing for awakening, I'm just one cell in this organism here that's a, a, an awakening organism. And I don't have to do it all by myself. Uh, I, can, I can lean on the rest of you and you can lean on one another and you can lean on us to, uh, um, that we can help carry this process for one another. Uh, and we, we're not meant to do this by ourselves. This is why the Sangha was... Uh, offered as the as the third of the refuges and why the buddha placed such emphasis on spiritual friendship the sense that spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life so we need to uh, reinvest our faith and our wisdom to uh, to let them kind of keep inviting each other to dance 
And then from feeling like two kind of separate things, they slowly begin to merge until they become inseparable. And just as wisdom unfolds in stages, so does faith. So one of the canonical definitions of, of faith, or we, it's this process of moving from kind of, um, I think it's sometimes called bright faith to what's called verified faith, is, um, is the... Uh, uh, the process of or the um, the movement of what's called stream entry. So uh, a stream enterer is somebody who has uh, developed an unshakable faith, a firmly established faith in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And such a person is... Uh, possesses three characteristics. So the first one is this unshakable faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, which is freedom from doubt about awakening and the path to awakening. The second is freedom from attachment to rules and rituals. So I think I said in last week's talk, you know, this sense of there's just stuff that if I do certain stuff perfectly, that will somehow take care of everything. You know, that's an instance of uh, you know, being, being attached to rules and rituals, thinking that our, our freedom, um, that our freedom and our, um, that the arising of wisdom just depends on performing certain things perfectly. And then the third quality of the of the stream mantra is um, a freedom from belief in personality. So this conviction that there's a, a continuous uh, personality running through all this experience. So that's, these are useful things to reflect on, you know, to, to what extent is the mind uh, still caught and invested in these kind of things. And I, I think I'm, I'm naming this, this, uh, um, this uh, aspect of stream entry here because uh, we often find, you know, many people have read about this and we we kind of want to have some experience that we've, that we've read about that we think would let us know we are getting somewhere, you know, that we're a stream enterer or we're on our way or something, or a certificate, mm -hmm. you know. There's either, there are certain practice traditions where they would kind of, you know, give you a tick and give you a certificate. And as you probably have gathered, that's not... Uh, what we do here. You know, we've been encouraging us all to be expectation free, uh, um, to practice like chickens. <laughs> but I do uh, acknowledge that, you know, sometimes we do really want to know are the, are the eggs that I'm sitting on going to hatch or are they kind of a duff batch? Am I the one person who's sitting on the eggs that are, aren't properly fertilized? You know? <laughs> and, and I'm investing all this time in, in, in my retreat. And you can imagine if you've taken the robes as well, you've given up a tremendous amount and possibly an indefinite commitment. And then that question becomes even more burning. You know, is this really going anywhere? Anywhere, what I'm doing. So we, it, although you know, I hope you've all understood the rationale for by now for being expectation free. You know, we do seek reassurance in ourselves, and this all pondering this actually led me to this whole uh, imagining of what it would be like to be a hen sitting on her eggs, and that surely, actually, as the chicks are getting ready to hatch, you can feel something underneath you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, all this is about, you know, just um, a caution against this sense of thinking that there's some experience that we can have that's going to really, um, you know, 
give us that 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 certificate so we might be we might be looking you know for did i have i experienced the rising and passing away and is the insight that i had a proper insight or not you know and the response of Ajahn Chah to these kinds of questions was always to say, it's a Thai expression, I can't pronounce it properly, but minair, it's not certain, it's not a sure thing. Yeah. Our, our insights, uh, they come and they go. And you can tell me an experience you had, but I can't guarantee what experiences you're going to have in future so this whole question of is is this what I'm supposed to see or not or have I have I where am I getting it's not really such a useful question so useful questions on the other hand might be things like did this did the insight that I just had give me a real glimpse of understanding of how suffering is created and released and is the mind seeing that now? Do I have some confidence in this practice? Do I trust that people really can do and are doing this? Is there some confidence there based on my personal experience? Do I know when the mind is fallen into personality belief and when it hasn't how's my practice of ethics going how has my suffering diminished with my engagement with this practice and those are kind of more practical questions so you know asking do i have you know can i apply the label to myself a stream enterer would understand the uselessness of clinging to an identity as a stream enterer. So it's a kind of dumb question for a stream enterer to be asking. There's a there's a um, sign I think it's uh, up, up at in the monastery Wat Pananachat, the International Forest Monastery in Thailand, that was founded by the Western disciples of Ajahn Chah. That quotes a saying of his that says, "Don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva. If you're anything at all, you will suffer." So if if the question arises for you, what am I doing here and am I wasting my time? You know, I know that these kinds of doubts sometimes trickle into the mind. I'd invite you to just see what's really underlying that question. Is it that I'm now measuring myself or my experience against some view of how I should be or how my experience should be? And you might contrast that with times that you know when that question isn't arising and see what, what, what's the, what was happening when the question wasn't arising. Because the only, the only really important question is, is the mind in this moment seeing the Dharma? And if so, is it acting, in accord, is it acting accordingly? Is my response to this moment coming from wisdom or faith in the Dharma or not? Is it coming from something else? And then if, if that question is being asked, then you don't really need to know if you're a noble one or an ignoble one or a child of the noble ones or permanently consigned to ignobility or whatever. We can just park all of that. So Jeannie asked me, we we're having a conversation before she left, and she said, well, what, you know, what do you think, what do you want for people on retreat? And I was reflecting about what do I want for myself when I go on retreat, and what would be my hope for, for all of us here? And I think, you know, f- for me, it's to have more confidence and more understanding of the Dharma, and more confidence in my ability to practice in accordance with it. Uh, that's all, you know. So growing, again, these qualities of trust, of faith, and of wisdom or understanding. 
And then we can know whether there's defilements are present in the mind and we can know when they're not there. Mindfulness of mind is knowing the mind with delusion as the mind with delusion and the mind without delusion as the mind without delusion. So delusion can be present, but we can know it's present. And then we can see when defilements used to arise, that used to arise, no longer arise, or arise with less intensity than before. So this really is a very a gradual process. So what we need to do is to remember what we've learned and be awake to the moment and also be open to the unknown. There's a lovely Pali word that I've always liked that's called uh, the Ananyatanya Samitindriya, which means that faculty of knowing, knowing that I'm knowing something I didn't know before, that I am knowing the unknown <laughs> faculty. And... Uh, you know, this, this can crop up again and again in our practice. So here's something more from Utejaniya. He says, do not limit yourself. Always leave the door open for new and deeper understandings. Wisdom is limitless. There's always room for more. Once wisdom has been experientially understood then there's no need to call on it as much because it becomes a part of your overall right view. Wisdom becomes consolidated and the mind is not changing from right view to wrong view as much. However, this is only true if the wisdom is being refreshed by continual practice. You should treat wisdom as you would treat your life savings. Invest it wisely and expect a healthy return. So the Buddha said that wisdom is like when you have a, um, a sloping roof like this with rafters, that the, the, the beam that secures all the rafters together in the middle is like wisdom in relation to all the other spiritual faculties. So sometimes we feel that wisdom is being slow to reveal itself. So I just want to end with um, some words from the German poet Rilke about trust. This is some advice that he gave uh, to a younger poet. Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.